private eye. I'm not here right now. Please leave a message. Listen up, punt. It's Tracy. This one's a bank robbery from 1971. Rumours are rife. The involvement of spooks and the alleged discovery of some compromising images. Yes, wouldn't it be curious? What exactly did take place and precisely who was behind it? All took place in Baker Street. Get down there forthwith. A bank heist. This was a first. And not only a bank heist, but a bank heist from the 70s. In the absence of Bodie or Doyle, I would have to do. I put on my widest lapels and kipper tie because, straight up, Gov, I knew just where to start. Turns out the job happened right on my manor. Or to translate, for those who don't speak 70s cop show, the crime in question took place within walking distance. OK, so I'm just leaving Broadcasting House. My mind was in a right two and eight as I headed to give the scene of the crime the old once-over. Turn right and head up Portland Place. A bank heist, controversial photographs, Whitehall poking their roar in. This looked a bit tasty. I mean, how very intriguing. So, just crossing Harley Street. I kept my wits about me. That mention of spooks had me well spooked. Walking west along Paddington Street. My destination was the address of Sherlock Holmes himself. Turning right into Baker Street. But this case looked like it would prove anything but elementary. So here it is, Lloyd's Bank. Looks impregnable. Clearly wasn't. Right near the tube station and on a junction full of motors, this very public place was the scene of what must rank as one of the most audacious robberies in British history. This was the biggest of its kind ever. My key source on the MO of this high-class blag was crime writer Robert Walsh. The robbers rented a leather goods shop and they tunnelled down about 15 feet. And then started to dig 40 feet across. The leather goods shop was two doors down from the bank. What lay in between was perfect should any of the tunnellers get peckish. There was a chicken restaurant, the uh, Chicken Inn. But there was no chickening out. These boys were in it for the long haul. This job would take time. About three months working only at weekends and during the night. A task that was fraught with danger. They were working in a very confined space in a tunnel that could have collapsed at any time in the hope that nobody would notice what they were doing. But what about the old bill? Sorted. The robbers had posted a lookout on a nearby roof who could communicate with the tunnellers by walkie-talkie. But despite all these precautions, the robbers' activities did not go undetected. A gentleman named uh, Robert Rowlands was living about two streets away in Wimpole Street and he was trying to tune into Radio Luxembourg and he picked up their radio chatter. Instead of digging the sounds, he found himself hearing the sound of digging. Rowlands called in the plod and after some umming and erring, the police decided to act. They proceeded to try and check every bank within, I think, a ten-mile radius. That amounted to 750 banks. A task which would take some time, and did. While the coppers carried out their grand tour of all central London's banks, the robbers were busy breaching the two-foot-thick reinforced concrete floor of the Baker Street vault. 
using some highly specialised gear. They burned through most of it with a thermic lance. A thermic lance? Do what? It's an incendiary device. It burns at about 3,000 degrees. But even with all the high-tech gadgetry and careful planning, the police still came tantalisingly close to blowing the whole caper. They actually checked the bank that was being robbed. But they didn't see anything, they didn't hear anything, because the lookouts had warned the people inside, stay still, keep quiet, and they went away. It wasn't until the Monday morning when the bank manager walked into the bank, went to check the vault, and found about 260 open safe deposit boxes and a hole in the floor of his vault. The robbers had got away with it. But how much had they got away with? At today's prices, the top estimate of the haul was about £33 million. £33 million? Yeah. A nice little earner. And it seems this particular crew even had time for a little literary flourish. One of the gang members used a spray can and sprayed inside the vault. Let Sherlock Holmes try to solve this. Really? Yes, because, because the bank was in Baker in Street. In Baker Street, of course. It was their idea of a little joke, a kind of parting shot. But the police weren't laughing, and they apparently rose to the challenge. The man who'd rented the leather goods shop was traced, four men were convicted, served time, and afterwards disappeared into obscurity. But it seems that wasn't the end of the story. Uh, the government gagging order or D-notice was issued. As Tracy had warned me, rumours are rife. The robbery prompted the issuing of a D-notice. The government ordered that five moved in and issued a D-notice. A D-notice was slapped on the story. The internet was full of claims that the government had attempted to hush up the story using a so-called D-notice. But why? The robbery was either set up by or later covered up by MI5 to secure sexually compromising photographs compromising photographs of senior public figures was there rather more locked in that vault than just cash and jewelry uh, photographs and other evidence of illicit sexual encounters implicate compromising photos of a royal of a royal it seemed far-fetched but was it possible hi my expert witness was dr stephen dorrell of huddersfield university it strikes me as being entirely possible because of the work I did on the Profumo affair, I know that there were photographs that would have been acutely embarrassing which, if they'd been released in 1963. There were a number of people who held collections of pornography involving people that were uh, well-known. Yes. And if this is the kind of material that was uh, revealed during this bank raid, then... It's entirely plausible that there would be some kind of attempt to cover it up. Aha. The Profumo affair had been the scandal of the swinging 60s. What's your reaction to the resignation of the war minister? Lied and lied and lied. Violent, poisonous, cloud of slander and innuendo. Lied Lied to his solicitor. Anyway, respond to that call. What we must do is to establish the fact. Yes, but had they done so, Prime Minister? Do you feel any responsibility for what's happened? I only hope that... It sorts itself out of my morals are a great public issue. Can't afford to have uh, dingy companions or squalid vices. But squalid vices 
were just what the public wanted to read about, and dingy companions, possibly even more so. With this in mind, could it be that the security services wanted to avoid another major scandal? Just what were these D-notices, and how did they help gag the newspapers? They were held by the editor, and I'd, I take it they were in his uh, drawer, and he would consult them if a story came up, say, dealing with MI5 or MI6, and uh, they would look to see what was acceptable, and then they could ring up the secretary and consult them. And is, is this purely voluntary, this system? It's correct, yes. So was this a stitch-up between newspaper editors and MI5? to hush up the existence of some photos possibly showing dingy companions may be engaged in squalid vices. Stephen thought it would be hard to find out. A lot of this appears to have been very off-the-record telephone calls, discussions, those kind of things. Yes, so I suppose possibly uh, with something that was more to do with embarrassment than security, it's possible that it would have been a more informal uh, approach anyway. Absolutely. Hmm, so where to start? One thing that had nagged at me all along was that this whole story, the tunnel, the radios, the compromising photos, almost seemed like a film. It's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, Terry. We can't pass it up. We are not bank robbers. Maybe that's why we could get away with it. The heist movie has been a cinema staple from The League of Gentlemen to Ocean's Eleven, Twelve and Thirteen. And a few years ago, the Lloyds robbery became the inspiration for a flick called The Bank Job. 300 grand. More like three million. With Jason Statham playing the ringleader of the gang. The script explored the rumours of D-notices and compromising photos and was written by Dick Clement and Ian Lafrenet, comedy heroes of mine and the writers of, among many other things, prison sitcom Porridge. But when it came to this real-life criminal caper, who was their contact? And would they reveal it to a dozy nerd like me? Speaking from Los Angeles, they agreed to blab. George McKindu was our entire source material. George? He was that deep throat. Yeah. George is a Scot. I tried to call him yesterday to see if I could uh, pick his brains before this interview, but he's an elusive fellow, and uh, I left a message, and uh, he was always slightly mysterious. He used to disappear from time to time. Yeah, did George call back? No. Trying to hook you up with George. Yeah. He lives here in California. Um, but George had worked for the Evening Standard, I think, pretty much. His name is on the byline. Right. His name is on the Evening Standard report the day after. Right, OK. And he, he told us he knew two of the robbers. But George McKindo, it seemed, wasn't in any hurry to speak to me. The film didn't name the public figure featured in dodgy photos supposedly taken on the Caribbean island of Mystique, but you didn't need to be Sherlock Holmes to work it out. The royal princess. Oh, dear. What a fiasco. We have to get our hands on these damning photographs of a certain royal person. The photos are in the safe deposit box at the Lloyds Bank. The photos in the vault are supposedly of, of Princess Margaret, is that right? Yes, it, but, but we, we were careful not to actually state that baldly. I mean, it, it is implied uh, very strongly. But it's a member of the... Uh, and, and the general consensus from the director and the producers and ourselves was to just stop two inches short of actually naming names. We didn't want to jeopardise our knighthoods. <laughs> At the risk of jeopardising my own, 
The claim is that compromising photographs had been stored in a safe deposit box rented by Michael X, a real-life figure in the 60s Black Power movement and someone who attracted more than a little interest from the security services. There's a file on him which is said not to be open till 2042. We actually saw that piece of paper saying that. And, you know, it occurs to us that even though we, of course, we don't have any proof. But the fact that there's a file on him that's sealed until, you know, long after we're going to be gone would suggest that there was something scandalous that they didn't want the public to know about. 2042. In the absence of the file, I needed to run a background check on this Michael X. Born in Trinidad, he moved to Britain and became an enforcer for notorious dodgy landlord Peter Rackman. But by the mid-60s, he was mixing with a different crowd, more in keeping with the zeitgeist. One day he'd be dropping acid in the park with Allen Ginsberg. Then the next day he'd be on a podium with Stokely Carmichael telling, you know, Whitey to keep a distance. John Williams has written about Michael X's life and his connections with the glitterati of the day. People like the Beatles, particularly John Lennon and Yoko Ono, sought Michael out. And he knew people like, you know, Mandy Rice Davis was a friend. He, he was very good friends with Leonard Cohen. He, he moved in lots of different circles. People were fascinated by him because he was a, you know, a man really from the streets. And the 60s were a funny time when, you know, gangsters would rub shoulders with, well, with literal royalty. Aha, literal royalty. And, um... Michael had a little black book that he carried around with him, which he claimed to have lots of uh, dirt on assorted people. So it's just conceivable that he was involved in things that uh, our betters would like us not to know about. Interesting. Michael X was due to appear at the Old Bailey, charged with extortion. But he left the country. Rather oddly, for someone due to appear at the Old Bailey, charged with extortion. There doesn't appear to have been any... Uh, you know, unwillingness on the part of uh, Britain to let him go. And uh, is that surprising, or is that just wanting to yeah, get a troublemaker out? I mean, you can see it as just simple expedience, or you can see it as the sinister hand of, you know, the security forces somewhere in the background, if you like. And as all the files relating to this are securely locked up till the crack of doom, it's we'll, we're unlikely ever to know. Could it be that Michael X had some sort of lever that somehow allowed him safe passage out of Britain. His widow, Desiree, is now very ill, but John had previously questioned her on the subject. She said she certainly didn't know of any such evidence. On the other hand, she you know, wouldn't have put it past Michael to have something. It's not completely ruled out, then? It would certainly be perfectly in character. <laughs> you know, right. I think Desiree, his wife, <laughs> I mean, she just laughed when she heard about it and thought, yeah, you know, that's the kind of thing Michael would do. But proof was thin on the ground. Then, a message on the old dog and bone. Hello, it's Nicholas Courtney here. I just got your email. And, um, yes, I'd be delighted to talk about um, the robbery and Princess Margaret. A witness to the high life led by the elite on that fixture of 1970s gossip columns, the island of mystique. Talk to you soon. Thanks, bye. Nicholas Courtney was a state manager of the island, where the photos in question were rumoured to have been taken. I arranged to meet Nicholas on his manor, down Fulham Way. I wanted to ask him about his time on the island. 
Would he spill the beans about the goings-on in this most remote of Caribbean hideaways? Then there was only one aeroplane a week going to Barbados. Then you had to fly into St Vincent and then get another little plane. If the plane wasn't flying, then you had to get a schooner. It's a very, very pretty island. I mean, the beaches are very white and the sea is turquoise. Perhaps unsurprisingly, this was a place to which the Queen's sister, Margaret, became very attached. In the early 70s, she was having a pretty rough time in the press and life with Lord Snowden was not a bed of roses. And so she was really, when she arrived, she was really quite tetchy. But then Mustique worked its magic. One of the people linked to Princess Margaret was John Bindon, an actor who, it's claimed, had connections to the criminal underworld. Bindon certainly was at a lunch party on the beach with Princess Margaret. Mm. But then so was everybody else on the island. And there is a photograph of him with Princess Margaret, but he's not with her. He's standing five feet away. He just happens to be there having a drink. Mm. But the hard-to-get-to retreat had such a tiny population that strangers would have stood out immediately. And Nicholas was extremely sceptical that any dodgy photos would or could have been snapped on the magic island. Certainly, they, it would be impossible, totally impossible, for anything of that nature to be taken on Mustique. So at the risk of disillusioning me entirely about the, uh, <laughs> the lifestyle on Mustique, to your knowledge, uh, nothing untoward went on there? No, absolutely, of course, as far as I know, absolutely not. Um, we all behaved with, um, with decorum. Well, to a point. In his biography of Mystique's owner, Colin Tennant, the Lord of the Isle, Nicholas tells a story about an interesting day on the beach with Princess Margaret and mutual friend Roddy Llewellyn. Colin was in his nudist stage. Right. And Colin said, Ma'am, do you mind awfully if I take my trunks off? Princess Margaret said, Hmm, well, no, so long as I don't have to look at it. <laughs> so Colin then took his trunks off, lay on them on the beach, and put his hat right. over his butt. Yeah. And then, to my horror, Roddy then took his trunks off. And I thought, Oh, God. I can't really be the only person here who's still clothed. No, clearly not. So I then reluctantly took my trunks off. And then Roddy produced his camera and Colin photographed Princess Margaret standing between Roddy and me. And she had this little skirt on her bathing costume, which she pulled out to yes. cover us up. And then, I mean, they were all very silly photographs and things. Who were Mrs? I mean, Your Royal Highness. So there were compromising photos, but nudie sunbathing hardly counts as a squalid vice, certainly not something worth raiding a bank for. But could this be how the rumour started? Photos of saucy 70s beach antics, which somehow, through Chinese whispers, became scandalous denotice material. It didn't stand up. Nothing to do with the photographs, that's just my feeling on the case. It felt like the whole royal photos rumour might be a red herring. There were other aspects of the affair I wanted to tune into. Our flying 
squad detectives were desperately trying to trace the source of the mysterious radio message and checking on hundreds of banks within a 10-mile radius of the west end of London, a gang was coolly and calmly smashing its way through the floor of the bank vaults of this branch of Lloyd's here at the junction of Baker Street and Marylebone. After radio ham Robert Rowlands had overheard the robbers' walkie-talkie chatter, the police seemed slow to act. I think after my phone call, which was about ten past nine on Sunday morning, after I'd received the early morning transmissions. Ten hours after you'd first told them something um, was happening. Yes, I suppose it would be. Then they proceeded to check every bank within a ten-mile radius. Would walkie-talkies have that sort of range? It was time to return to the scene of the crime, Baker Street. I'd arranged a briefing from Giles Reed from the Radio Society of Great Britain. So it's 1971 and we've got some people in central London communicating with each other via walkie-talkies. Um, how commonplace would that have been then? Not at all commonplace. Walkie-talkies were very rare, as were any form of two-way radio communication then. I imagine that their radios would have been smuggled in from the United States and sold on the black market. Really? They were that rare? Very much so. But I wanted to know about the range and Giles agreed to an experiment. However, first, I had to master some specialised technical skills. There's a little button on the side that you press before you talk. Right. That makes the transmitter work. That's this one. That's that one That's there. One. Right. Radio in hand, I set out on my quest. Uh, so I will start walking, and we will see how far we can go and still get a signal. Hi, Giles, turn left into Porter Street, wondering if I'm still getting a signal. Yes, most definitely. We can hear you loud and clear. So they're now outside the Sherlock Holmes Hotel. Over. And your signal for coming in very nicely, thank you. Perfectly readable. Perfectly readable. I'm on the corner of Paddington Street and Chilton Street. Uh, still hearing you pretty well. Only over a quarter of a mile from you now, heading towards Marylebone High Street. But just as I was really getting into it, I started to lose the signal. Now, this is the point on a train where I would be shouting, you're breaking up. Yes, your signals are breaking up too, so I think we've just about reached the limit of communication. Roger that. Yeah, so I've just reached... It's funny, it's gone to repeat. I'd got all the lingo and everything, but the experiment was over. Over. Hi, Giles. I'm on Devonshire Street. Have I lost you completely? And that is what they call radio silence. And I was less than half a mile away from the bank. I rejoined Giles to get his verdict. So do you find it surprising that they decided to go for a 10-mile radius, given that these walkie-talkies had such a small radius? Personally, I do. Because, as I understand it, Mr Rowlands did say he thought that the range would be about a mile or so mm. from where he was living. Which the police ignored. To be fair, Rowlands had a bigger aerial on his radio, but even so, he was an experienced operator whose estimate of distance turned out to be spot on. And there's another thing. Remember that the police actually visited the bank in question. Indeed, they admitted this on news reports at the time to a young John Humphreys. You actually did check the vault door. So presumably they were inside at the time you checked the vault door. Though they knew that there was a tunnel involved, they seemed simply to have looked at the door and said, oh, the door is in place, everything is all right, and walked away. 
it doesn't seem to me to be particularly credible that they would have been quite that incompetent. Hmm. I had asked criminologist Judith Robottom to examine the case. What did she make of that taunting message spray-painted in the bank vault, let Sherlock Holmes try and solve this? Especially since it so happens there is indeed a Sherlock Holmes story where thieves rent a shop and tunnel through into a bank next door. Does that suggest anything about our robbers? Well, apart from anything else, it suggests to me that they were told to leave that message by whoever was actually behind this crime, because I am certain that those tunnellers did not come up with the idea. They, they weren't all just 19th century fiction fans? I think it unlikely. Yes. Um, but that does suggest that there was someone in charge who presumably was never arrested. I think that that is right. I think there was, to use the terminology of the time, a Mr Big somewhere behind the whole plot. A Mr Big. Judith told me that the men convicted of the robbery were apparently small-time crooks, not criminal kingpins. And given the scale of the undertaking, it surely made sense that some shadowy mastermind lay behind the scenes. I mean, they must have spent about, Lord, half a million pounds in terms of bribes, acquiring the staff, organising everything. As I say, the walkie-talkies were illegal in terms of private citizen use. You couldn't just go and lay your hands on a thermolance. Yes. But the police do not seem to have pursued the figure behind what was a pretty major bank robbery, around 30 million in today's money. Yes. I find that strange. I'd call it stranger than a nine-bob note. So what about the faces who did go down for the caper? They kept their mouths shut, did their time, and then what? We know virtually nothing about these characters except that we are told that they all moved abroad. Mm. One of them is supposed to have lived in Switzerland. The suggestion is another couple of them went to Spain. Does that in itself suggest something about who this mysterious Mr Big might have been? I think it suggests that he was sensible enough to make darn sure that those actually doing the robbery could expect to be well paid. If they put up and shut up, they would have their reward when they came out of prison. After all, most of the money was never recovered. Thirty million pounds. Enough to disappear with a few dingy companions to your very own Caribbean paradise. And never mind Sherlock Holmes, what about Moriarty? If there was a Mr Big, not only was he never caught, he was apparently never even looked for. All of which leads me to wonder, was this a right royal stitch-up where the word that the toffs up west got the wind up and told the press to stay still may have been a way of taking the heat off plod and their less than stellar investigation? In other words, was this a case of a trumped-up scandal obscuring a real one? Be lucky. <laughs>